Good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, as many of you know, we are experiencing a bit of a snowstorm down here in Texas. And so we determined uh, today, which is Saturday, uh, to make the call that we were not going to have in-person worship services today, Sunday morning, uh, just so that we could be safe. Um, and given the context of what's happened in Fort Worth this week, we thought it was necessary and good to take these measures and these precautions that we wouldn't have people on the roads more than necessary. So thank you for joining us here this morning. Thank you for taking the time to listen to, uh, to me today. Uh, we're thankful for you. We're also thankful for technology that we're able to uh, accomplish this in this way and, and still be able to um, have God's word read and preached. And so we give thanks to the Lord for that. This morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And in this section of Mark's Gospel, we come to a pivotal point in the journey of Jesus and the disciples as they have made their way from Galilee up north into the region of Tyre and Sidon and Decapolis, and even to this city of Caesarea Philippi. Today, we find ourselves uh, with Jesus and the disciples traveling again back down south, and Jesus takes three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a very tall mountain, where we then begin to read and understand the story of what's called the Transfigurations. So, if you have your Bibles available or an app available, I would encourage you to take those out to turn into your Bible or your app to the ninth chapter of Mark, where we'll be reading verses 2 uh, to 13. So, Let's read God's word together and jump into this wonderful story, the reading of God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, you've told us uh, that your word is firm and true. And so we ask that you would take the truths in your word and that you would apply them to our hearts and our lives, that you would mold us and that you would shape us, and that we would see a glimpse of your glory, even as we read this section and study this section of your word together. So again, as you've told us, the, the grass will wither and fade, but your word stands firm and true forever. Make that true in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in life we are constantly facing difficulty and pain, or suffering and sickness various emotions. Now, this goes on and on. We know these stories well, don't we? And we know what these feelings are like. But we also, with this, face broader, more philosophical questions of existence. Who am I? Why am I? Purpose. What am I doing here? What is my goal? 
What is my vision and cause for living or mission or just simply goals that we have? We have potentials and we have disappointments. These are things that we wrestle with on a daily, weekly, monthly, and annual basis. Life has a portion of uncertainty wrapped in fear and doubt, isn't there? We know these things because we experience these things. And the disciples themselves, as they were on this journey with Jesus, are experiencing, feeling, knowing all of the very same things. Pain, suffering, the reality of these things, the potential of these things, the emotions that they have, the fears that they have. The list goes on and on. We saw that with Peter last week. He has certain expectations of what he thinks the Messiah, the Christ, is supposed to be. Certain expectations for his mission, his vision of, of his purpose in life. What's it suppo- Why is he following Jesus now? He has a certain understanding of what's supposed to happen. The disciples are all wrestling with these very things. And so again, let us remember where we are in this journey, on, on this story through the Gospel of Mark. They've just completed this journey from the region of Galilee up, Galilee, up north into these regions of, as I mentioned already, Tyre, Sidon, Caesarea Philippi, the Decapolis. And they're now making their way back down south towards Jerusalem again. And on this journey, they've seen miracles. They've seen healings. They've seen the compassion of Jesus, the compassion that he has for the Jewish people, for the Gentile people. For all people, they've witnessed all these things and they've been awe of all of these things. However, in the middle of these miracles and displays of power, what grips them still is uncertainty, fear, doubt, disbelief, and even unmet expectations. Jesus had told them that the path that they are traveling on is the path that he's traveling on. And it's not an easy path. If you recall last week, as we entered into the story, uh, just prior to the transfiguration, Peter rebuked Jesus, for Jesus was telling him that this path of the Christ is one of suffering, of rejection, and death. And Peter had an awakening. He's like, well, if that's the story of the Christ, then that's going to be the story of me as well. And he didn't like that. And so he confronted Jesus and rebuked Jesus, saying, this isn't for you. And then Jesus said those famous words, get behind me, Satan. Peter was mistaken, wasn't he, about who the Christ is? He's mistaken about what the role of the Christ is. He's mistaken about his role, Peter's role, and what it's going to be. Jesus then does rebuke him, doesn't he? In the same way he rebuked Satan in the wilderness, he rebukes Peter. And then the very next story that Jesus says and does and Mark tells us is the story of the transfiguration. This glorious story of a glimpse of glory, which is uniquely sandwiched in between two stories of suffering, rejection, death. If we look further down in verse 30, just a few verses later, we see almost an identical forecasting, foreshadowing that Jesus says to his disciples again. He must suffer. He must die. And he must be raised again. As good Bible readers, we, we must ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, why is this story of the transfiguration placed here? Immediately prior, we had Jesus telling Peter and the others that he does indeed have to suffer and die. And not immediately following the story, but the, a few verses later in verse 30, Jesus says exactly the same thing to his disciples and to us. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die. 
So why is it that the transfiguration is here, sandwiched in between these two stories of suffering and death and rejection? Why are the disciples able to see Jesus on this mountain, transfigured, glorious, with clothes as white as can be? Why? Why are the disciples able to see the radiant glory of the Lord? Right before and right after these stories. Right before he tells them he has to suffer and die. It seems to me that the reason that this story, the transfiguration, is told here is because the disciples are in great fear. Mark even tells us they were terrified. Terrified, yes, of this transfiguration, but also fear of what the future looks like and what it holds. If we look further down into this ninth chapter, under verse 32, it says that they did not understand what Jesus was talking about, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They were so scared that the man they've been with for some time now, they, they couldn't even ask him, what does it mean to suffer and die and to be rejected? This is, this is a terrifying prospect that they were now finding themselves on. And now here, Jesus brings these three guys, Peter, James, and John, up to the top of a mountain to show them a glimpse of glory, a bit of himself. I remember being a, a young boy and desperately wanting to play football. I dreamt about it, and I imagined myself scoring the winning touchdown in a, in a Super Bowl. The future was, was golden and my path was secure. I, I knew that it was but a formality that at six years of age I was already uh, enshrined in the NFL Hall of Fame. There's no question about it. My parents spent then a small fortune on football equipment and, and, and encouraged me. I would put on my helmet and my pads and enter the gridiron of the backyard of the Arkham Estate where no one could touch me. For after all, I wasn't already in the Hall of Fame. Eric Dickerson couldn't touch me. John Elway had nothing on me. I, I, I was Hall of Fame. There was no doubt about it. Then the day came for me to go to my first football practice. I was so excited. It was my coming out party. Couldn't wait. Absolutely couldn't wait. The, the coach then lined us up into various positions, and I thought for sure that I was going to be starting quarterback or running back or, at worst, wide receiver, right? For I was a tall, skinny kid, and... Uh, I thought, well, I could catch the ball. I can throw the ball. Instead, I was put on the offensive line. I still, to this day, don't understand why. However, I was. And so we lined up and we got in our stances and put my hand in the dirt. Whistle blew. I never wanted to play football again. I was terrified. I was fearful. I cried. It hurt. There was pain and suffering. Here I am, this tall, skinny kid, getting beaten to a pulp on the offensive line. I wasn't John Elway. I wasn't Eric Dickerson. It certainly wasn't Hall of Fame material. I was a scared, skinny little boy. A scared, skinny little boy that went crying back to the car after the very first practice and cried each and every day that we had practice to not go. I didn't want to go. I didn't want the pain. I didn't want the suffering. I didn't want to get beat up anymore. And yet I was too scared to talk to the coach about why did you put me on the line? Why not quarterback? Why not running back? Why not wide receiver at least? So then I would go home and wallow in my fears and in my sorrow. 
there wasn't even so much the pain, I don't think, the, the physical pain of it, but there was unmet expectations I had in my mind. I was convinced that I was going to be something. And yet the reality of the situation was so much different. My expectations versus reality just were two separate, completely different things. This must have been what the disciples must have been going through. They had these ideas, these visions of glory and what was to come and, and how they were to be and what they were to be. And yet here this reality says it's about suffering. It's about rejection. There are tears. There are pain. There are sorrows. But you know what moved me to continue in those practices as a young boy? Even though I was begging to quit, my parents wouldn't let me. And I, and I understand why now. There's some good parenting rules there, I think. But... More than that, I learned something about my parents. I learned that they had my back, even if I was scared. They wanted to, yes, teach me something, but they also let me cry. And they let me cry on their shoulders, and they let me be sad. And they also wanted me to go through it. And now I look back on that, and I appreciate that I, I learned more about my parents and their love for me than I did even about myself or about football. And so this story about the transfiguration and the sorrow and the pain and the hurt that the disciples must be going through, they're learning something about their God. They're learning something about the Christ. They're learning something about the Messiah and who he is and what he is and what he's about. It may not be Pop Warner football, but how many times in life is this where we find ourselves too, right? Too many to count. Jesus has just revealed to the disciples again that he will, most likely, they will suffer, be rejected, and die. And yet he continues to pursue them. He continues to pursue them and to show them himself, even in the scary, even in the fear. There's so many things that we can learn from the transfiguration, really some deep theological truths and aspects of the story. There are so many things that we can pull from this story, but the question that lingers in my mind as we read the story is a simple one. Just as I learned something about my parents when I was just six years old, what is it that we learn from God about this story? What is it that we learn about God from this story? Who is he? How is he? What is he about? Why are we given this story? Why are fearful men like Peter James and John allowed to see this incredible moment with Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Why are they allowed to see Jesus aglow from the beauty of the Lord that's manifest now in this person, this man, Jesus? What did they need to see? What did they need to know? What did they need to learn about their God? What did they need to see about God on the top of this mountain? If we can't answer that question, then perhaps we can ask and ask the same question of ourselves. What do fearful people need to know about their God? What do uncertain and doubtful people and, and what do guilty people and people full of shame need to know about their God? What do we need to learn about who the Lord is? The answer then is crucial to the story of the transfiguration and crucial, crucial to our story as well. It's the same thing that's crucial to the disciples on the top of Mount Hermon. So what do we learn about our God? We learn that God is a promise keeper. We learn that God is present. And we learn that God 
is powerful. As we enter into the scene of the account of the transfiguration according to Mark, which most likely was relayed to him through Peter, um, is that Mark's brevity is displayed yet again. He doesn't like to give us a whole lot of details. He doesn't belabor the point. He just simply says they were going on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured, his clothes became really white, and that's about it. And then, oh yeah, a couple guys like Moses and Elijah were there too. Mark isn't eloquent. He doesn't give long, laborious poems about the experience of beauty and glory and the, the mountaintop and the cloud and these two guys who are long dead. Or not. He, he, just, he just simply gives us the facts. This is what we see through Mark's gospel over and over again. Short, to the point, sweet. But Mark does provide us with some details, a few details about this story that are important to us that allow us to see and to learn about our God according to what he's saying to us. There were Peter, James, John, Jesus, and oh yeah, these two dead guys that we thought were dead, Moses and Elijah. It seems to me that a story or two ago, Jesus asked them, Who do you say I am? Do you remember their answers? Some say you are John the Baptist. Okay? Not quite sure how that can be. Some say you are Elijah, and some say you are one of the prophets. And now here on top of this mountain are Elijah and one of the prophets. So certainly Jesus is set apart. He, he's not Elijah because Elijah's right here. He's a prophet, but not one of those Old Testament prophets like Moses because Moses is right here. So what this right from the get-go is saying to us is that Jesus is over and above something else, something separate, something unique and distinct not Elijah, not a prophet, not John the Baptist. He is indeed the Christ. He is the Son of God, even as now the voice comes out of the cloud and says these very things. Jesus is reiterating to the disciples. He's answering their question. Who do you say I am? I am the Christ. I'm not one of these guys. And to prove it, I want to show you this, right? Who do you say I am? I am the Christ. Jesus is defining himself as indeed the Son of God. But there are also a few other suggestions that are bantered about by theologians as to why this story is given, what, what this transfiguration is all about, or, or one, why are Moses and Elijah here? Is it just simply because Jesus wants to be distinct and set himself apart? I think that's a, one reason. Other theologians give us a couple of the theories. One, one theory says that these guys are there to, to, to foreshadow and to, to point us to an apocalyptic revelation. It's talking about the end times. It's talking about these guys are pointing to, to something greater, something further in time, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. It's plausible, but the writing of Revelation took place after this story, and so th this story is not really built upon an apocalyptic event or, or an end times event. It's, it's its own separate, distinct thing, separate from that. Certainly Jesus is the fulfillment of those things, but that's not the real essential part of the transfiguration. Another theory is that both Moses and Elijah were deliverers of Israel, deliverers of God's people. And then they, they, they were pointing to Jesus as the, as the ultimate deliverer in, in line with Moses and Elijah. This is more, it's a better argument than the one I just described. However, if we're going to talk about deliverers, certainly Moses is, is at, the, at the forefront. He definitely is a deliverer of, of Israel, of course. We know the Exodus story. 
Elijah, yes, in some way, but he's not the, the strongest of persons. If you want to talk about a Hall of Fame, whether it's the NFL or, or whatever, you might need a little bit stronger candidate than Elijah as far as the Hall of Fame of Deliverers. I, I would put in that category men like David or, or Joshua or Josiah or, or even men like Gideon who have a more prominent story of deliverance in the Bible than of Elijah. Okay, so if that's not the case, then, then, then what do we do? It would seem to me then that the reason for Moses and Elijah's presence to be on the mountain with Jesus to show these three disciples is that they're representatives. Representatives of prophetic elements of the Old Testament. For if we remember the purpose of the prophets was to point to the true prophet, to the promised Messiah of God's people, to the Christ. The prophet Malachi points out this very thing in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. It seems pretty clear to me when we, when we consider what Malachi has to say for us. It says these words, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. Okay, in the very next verse. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The role of Moses and Elijah is to turn the hearts of parents and children to the ultimate and true prophet, the one Messiah, this Christ, the day of the Lord. And here on this mountain, Moses and Elijah are pointing to the Messiah on top of this mountain. Here on this mountain is a promise kept. God is a promise keeper. Where Moses and Elijah were to yield to an audience with Jesus. For the way that the, the language is constructed, it says they were talking with Jesus, meaning they were submitting themselves to his authority. That they were not talking to Jesus or over Jesus, but they were talking with him as he was teaching or, or, or some position of authority over them. There, there was a submissive aspect to what they were doing there. They submit to his authority and they obey to his presence and his power. One commentator puts it this way. The presence of Moses and Elijah thus signifies that Jesus is not a walk-on in, in the divine economy, nor is his revelation as the Son of God an anomaly or an arbitrary expression of the divine will. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet's proclamation of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is here and now. Today, on top of this mountain, the day of the Lord has come. The Lord God has kept his promise to Moses, to Elijah, and to his people, and now to these three disciples and to all of mankind. But the thing that speaks volumes is that they do not stay with Jesus, but they vanish. They yield their ministry to his. The mission culminates in the ultimate prophet. The day of the Lord has arrived in the person of Jesus. In God's Son, the day of Yahweh is at hand, and all that has gone before bears witness to him. The Lord has kept his promise to his people to bring the Messiah, to bring ultimate and final deliverance, to bring ultimate and final comfort. Peter, James, and John witnessed this fulfillment, and, and they witnessed the kept promises of the Lord as they stood on this mountain with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. They perhaps did not fully understand the magnitude of what was taking place for them, or perhaps they didn't fully understand how and, and in what aspect the Lord was keeping his promise, but they certainly saw these two prophets were now with Jesus and with them, and Jesus was in authority over them. Now, I understand that this is a, 
a culturally worn-out phrase, but the truth of the statement speaks volumes to our lives today, that Jesus is a promise keeper, that the Lord is a promise keeper. But in the uncertainty and the fear and the pain and the sorrow of our lives, there's a remarkable promise made to us. A remarkable promise made to God's people by God. The paths of life that we tread, we do not tread on our own. We are not left to, to wander untethered. We're not left to wander without a guide. Nor is the world spiraling out of control without any sovereign power over it. The Lord has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. He has promised the disciples that he will be rejected, that he will suffer, and that he will die. For we see that he was indeed rejected, rejected by those whom he loves, even by one standing on the mountain, even by his eternal Father. He was rejected. He suffered under the hands of a Roman legion. He did die, and he did rise again. These things are true. This is what Moses and Elijah confirmed. If these promises are kept and fulfilled, then we are certain that we are not alone, and that he will come again to finally fulfill righteousness and justice, to restore all of creation and humanity to the way it's supposed to be. So in our fear and in our loneliness and in our struggle, and yes, even like me as a small boy in our tears, we're not alone. The promise of the Lord's presence is real, and it's true. So not only is the promise of presence made real to us in the person and work of Jesus, but here on this mountain, we see a glimpse of the glorious presence of the Lord. Mark, in some of these details that he does give us, he gives us some remarkable detail about the wonderful comfort of the Lord. A key to understanding the, the transfiguration is to understand one of these details. A key to understanding the transfiguration is to understand the cloud. Yes, the cloud. For the cloud in the Old Testament is often, often linked with the presence of God. I think one of the ways, and one of the ways that we most we might remember the most, is how the Lord led God's people through the wilderness, both by a pillar of fire and by a cloud. The presence of the Lord was communicated to the people on a cloud as they were underneath Mount Sinai, and the cloud was present on top of the mountain to, to designate that the Lord was there. The cloud usually does signify the presence of the Lord. But even in a more poignant and in specific uh, way, we, we see the cloud as, as, as a symbol of God's presence as we, as we read Exodus chapter 24. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, seems like six days on this journey too, as Mark started this story, right? And after six days, they came to a mountain. And here in Exodus chapter 24, in the, in the recollection of the Moses story of him going on to Mount Sinai, in six days, the cloud was over the mountain with Moses. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. seems to me that in our story today the Lord calls out from the same cloud. And he calls out to these people. 
the word that is used to describe this presence of the Lord here in Mark's gospel in this transfiguration story is not used very often. And as I've said to you many times, when a word's not used very often, we have to take note of that. And we have to take note of when it is used and, and when it's not used. And here, this word, overshadowed, the cloud overshadowed them, is used in, in a couple very interesting places. One place is when the, the, the cloud was entering into the tabernacle, was when the cloud entered into the tabernacle of the Lord, and, and, and the Lord's presence was now in the tabernacle. Another is in, um, in Luke's gospel, when Mary was encountering the Holy Spirit. And it's the overpowering, overshadowing of the Holy Spirit now entered into Mary and conceived Jesus himself. One theologian uses a graphic and yet profound comment to, to state this reality. The cloud is the impregnating presence of God, symbolizing that in Jesus, even more than in the tabernacle of old, God dwells bodily with humanity. Friends, may it be abundantly clear to us this morning, even as we meet via technology, that we're blessed with the impregnating presence of the Lord. We're not alone. This is of great comfort to me. To know that the Lord is not far off. He is not distant, but He envelops us with His presence, and that we do not, and that we do indeed have a companion on this journey of life in our tears, in our frustrations, in our guilt, and in our shame, and the average walk of daily life. But something even more remarkable happens. For the disciples who are witnessing this amazing experience, the same voice that called to Moses out of the cloud when he was on Mount Sinai now calls to these people who are gathered on top of this mountain. And what does that voice say? In almost identical words to the baptism of Jesus, the voice says, This is my son. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then these words come on the heels of the story we had last week. On the heels of Peter's rebuke of Jesus after Peter was trying to listen to Jesus. And Peter didn't like what Jesus was having to say. And now here, Peter on this mountain stands there with Moses and Elijah, James and John and Jesus. And these, this voice bellows from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What did Peter need to hear in that moment? First, he needed to see that Jesus is who he is. He needed to see the radiance of God's glory, that, that Jesus was, was full of the glory of the Lord, that he was as white as what Moses came down from the mountain looking at after he was encountering the presence of the Lord. Here now, Jesus is that very manifest glory of the Lord standing before Peter. Peter needed to see that. Peter needed to hear these words, listen to him. What did Peter need to listen to? That Jesus was to suffer. That he was to be rejected. And that he was to die. The Lord also said this to Moses, as Moses recounts in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. You must listen to him. Listen that the Christ must suffer. Listen not only to the fact that he must suffer, but... In and out of suffering comes something else. In and out of suffering comes power. In and out of suffering comes what the other thing that we need to learn about God in this story. 
is that not only is he a promise keeper and not only is he present with us, but that he has his power, power over suffering, power over life, and yes, even death. From the third day, he does promise to be present with us and that he will be raised from the dead and that death cannot hold him. This is a glorious promise of his remarkable power. But I want, us, I want to leave you with something here this morning. I want, you, I want to leave you with the concluding bits of this story. Moses and Elijah depart. They vanish. They disappear. Jesus is alone again with his disciples. They have seen a glimpse of divinity. A glimpse of glory. And here Jesus remains with them. He doesn't go back. He doesn't go back with Moses and Elijah. On this beautifully, gloriously difficult journey is in the gospel where we see majesty. We see the majesty of our inadequacy compared to the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And Jesus remains. The one who calls people to himself. The one who calls you out of the tears, out of the sorrow, out of the pain, out of the hurt, out of the loneliness. He doesn't abandon them or you to return to glory. Rather, he turns from glory. And he turns to the journey. He turns to the journey back to Jerusalem. He turns from the promise that he has of the glory with Moses and Elijah and his father. And he turns to go back down the mountain. To walk to the place he knows he must go. To turn from what he knows awaits him. To go to the cross. To go to the place of rejection. To go to the place of suffering. To go to the place of death. Why? Because of his deep love for, Peter, for people like Peter, for James, and for John, and for you. Jesus is rejected. He suffers and he dies in order that we too would experience and know and see a glimpse of his glory. A glory that says that he has indeed conquered death and it cannot hold him. A glory that says he is powerful and that he is present because he is a promise keeper. And that promise that he has made to you and to me on this day is one that he leaves us with. For he promises he will never leave. He will never forsake. And he says, lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are a God who is present with us. In the best of times and in the worst of times, you are a powerful promise keeper that has your presence with us at all times. So we give you thanks for this truth. We give you thanks for this grace. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.